Good evening and welcome to another episode of Nigeria Politics Weekly. I'm Nigeria's Best and co-hosting with me is Phoenix Agenda. Today our guest is Omasa. Omasa is a graduate of politics and international relations. We'll be discussing three stories this week. The first is the fracas in the House of Representatives over the petroleum industry bill. Our second story is Transparency International announced last week that Nigeria had falling, fallen in the anti-corruption rankings. And thirdly, President Buhari finally replaced his service chiefs. So to Phoenix, first of all, the petroleum industry bill. There was supposed to be a hearing in the House of Representatives and members of the host communities were supposed to be making a presentation but somehow it descended into a fight. People got punched and I think there was an elder, elderly chief who had blood dripping from his mouth because he was punched in the face. So what happened, Phoenix? How did a public hearing on a bill descend into fisticuffs? Hi, Nigeria's best. Uh, um, hi, listeners. And uh, thanks, Omasa, for joining us uh, this week. Um, I mean, from reports, uh, what, what actually happened was um, you had uh, representatives of the host communities uh, invited to speak. Um, and when it was time for them to speak, there was no clear order as to who was going to uh, do so. And um, I mean, they, they started a scuffle amongst themselves that swiftly degenerated into fisticuffs. Um, it was a show of shame, no doubt about it. And uh, um, and I mean, under no circumstances should uh, adults descend into, into such, uh, I mean, issue of shame. And uh, I do hope that the representatives have been held to account by, by the people who sent them there. But, but to me, I mean, I mean there is also um, the part that was played by the people who set the whole thing up in the sense that typically in things like this, there's a clear order that people will have understood and known that uh, when, when this call comes out, this is the person or this is the organization that has to go first or that has to speak or, you know, but that was not the case. So, I mean, for me, it's either, the, I mean, another show of incompetence on the part of government and, and the people in charge, NAS and the federal government and wh whoever, or it was something more sinister to these, um, to perhaps the fact that maybe this is the outcome that they wanted. They always want um, people who agitate for something better. They always want to, there's always this sense like you need to discredit them by making them look like uh, um, unruly, an unruly mob, um, which of course helps the government's case, um, given that, I mean, they've not, treated this uh, host communities fairly. I mean, if you even look at the offer that has been made to them in the PIB uh, to offer them 2.5% of operational cost, that's, that's not going to be, that, that's not gone down well at all. So you wonder, I mean, and, and you're hearing back from the, from the community saying very clearly their, their expectation that it should be 10% of equity, which, which sounds very fair to me if they are the ones who are bearing the brunt and it's, it's their livelihoods that gets uh, distorted by, by the exploration of oil. So, I mean, for me, I hold, I hold um, of course, for me, I, it was a shameless display, 
but I also hold the, the government to account and say that uh, um, this, this was a, a shoddy, uh, shoddily run um, um, hearing and, um, and just hope that, I mean, my suspicions are not, are not, uh, to, to, are not the right thing. I mean, but you never can tell with these clowns and how they do things. Malasa, Phoenix has said that he thinks that is a possibility that they must have known that this fight would break out or maybe it was something they were hoping would happen. So the first question is, do you agree? Do you think the government probably wants this host community drama as a means of distracting or even perhaps derailing the process? Uh, I wouldn't say necessarily so that they wanted host community drama, but uh, you, I still have to make I still have to get mention of fact. Initially, when this first happened, I thought it was oh, this was another day in the drama and a comedy show called the National Assembly of Nigeria. So initially, I ignored it until I decided I did some reading about it later. I find it very interesting, and this has to do with the marginalization of host communities, because why was there only one group of people for the host community, community that decided to speak on behalf of the host communities? First of all, the Niger Delta is, is an area of size larger than Scotland, for example, and there, and there are 30, 40, many different groups of tribes and cultures in that area. So why would you just give like a token committee of a day to do this kind of thing? If you were actually very serious about it, you would give, you would make sure the, in this petroleum industry bill that the host communities are front and center of it. Yeah, all companies all managed to send their own representatives, but you're saying like uh, people, like for example, like Ijoy, Shakiri, Urubu, Bini people should all be represented by one group. Anybody who would know that that's not possible and not a good idea. So I'm divided, like Phoenix. I think it's either I think it's incompetence rather than or man rather than sheer malice in that kind of way. Because it sounds like something the Nigerian government has not been even on its best days, be very people friendly or people centered. So they probably just did this as kind of the normal way of, of doing business. So I wouldn't say it's deliberate, but just more likely a lack of a lack of oversight or or, or consideration. Not really not really malice in this way, in that way. Well, one area I would agree is, perhaps you say they're just uh, callous and reckless. So their, their attitude to dealing with many of these issues is not to think things through. But I can also, obviously, as uh, somebody from the Niger Delta, and I know Amasa, you're a Shekiri as well, so you're also from the Niger Delta. My bigger concern is this fight all the time about money. I agree that 10% equity should be given to the communities. But for me, I don't think it should be any kind of money sharing exercise. The money should be put in a trust fund to pay for young people to get free education in the region, free healthcare, and to clean up the environment so that people can make something of themselves. Because my big worry is, and we've seen that in families and in countries and just generally, whenever people feel entitled or feel entitled to cash handouts, it tends to exacerbate problems. So my view is all the money should be challenged to education and healthcare and cleaning the environment. To uh, Phoenix, it's between 2.5% or 10% that the communities are demanding. 
But how do you balance that with the 13% that the states are already receiving as well as the money being paid to the Niger Delta Development Commission? To an extent, wouldn't some people would argue that isn't this some form of duplication where you have three uh, different revenue streams? I think I think they would, they would have a point, but at the, at the end of the day, the, the question is where does where does um, true equity lie? How much is how much is enough to compensate these communities for what we see happening to them? Thirteen percent, ten percent, add it all together, we're still nowhere near uh, a third of what the Nigerian state is making from there. So. I mean, if 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 they are demanding fifty percent, are we going to say it's too much? So I, I think I think I mean, having not fully delved into the PIB to know whether some of these other agencies or some of this, I mean, whether the derivation itself will change um, the nature of which it is, um, and this replaces it. I haven't I haven't gone into it to that detail, but as far as I'm concerned. Um, even when you add all of that up, um, it, it's still not too much for them to be asking for. Now, the, 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 the bigger issue for me is how do they make sure that putting all these pieces together, they deliver, they deliver effective outcomes um, to the people that truly need them? And, and that's the bigger question for me. Um, like you rightly said, there, there are already pockets of um, significant amounts of money that get put in play ostensibly to enable the uh, uh, to enable a, uh, better outcomes for the host communities but we know that doesn't happen people mismanage the funds um, there's a lack of transparency there's also a lack of willingness to do the right thing and to bring uh, positive outcomes to the people that has to be the focus so perhaps you don't need to give as much if what you are giving truly helps to change um, the narrative and truly brings development, truly brings um, positive outcomes to the people. But until then, they have the right to agitate for as much as they can because they feel like, look, if, even if we get 50%, how much of it will really filter down to, to the people? So I still think the onus is on the Nigerian government and Nigerian state to do the right thing and to, to put in place the right mechanisms to make sure that the people get uh, positive outcomes. I quite agree, Phoenix, and I just hope that the communities put pressure and also experts in the region work with the communities so that the, the allocation, the resource allocation formula is both fair, but also directed at the people so that the education, healthcare and environment is, is better than it currently is. But on to our next topic, corruption. Uh, President Buhari and the APC came into office uh, making corruption one of their, or fighting corruption, their, their signature policy. Yet Transparency International announced uh, last week that they, they have fallen once, to, once again in the rankings to their lowest point since they came into office. Um, how did it come about, uh, Omasa, that Buhari, who calls himself Mr. Integrity, has delivered a, a, a terrible uh, 
anti-corruption rating? Well, to be fair, it's not a surprise on this matter. Well, it's a bit disappointing. It's inconsistent for the last five years. The Buhari government says does one thing and said does one thing and says another thing. For example, we are told that this government hates corruption and is against any form of corruption and is opposes it. But it takes steps that actively encourage and aggravate corruption because that would be him being nepotistic and being tribalist in his appointments. We can talk about the, the new government programs that have no transparency. For example, we can talk about the social, Ministry of Social Affairs school feeding program, which continued during, for example, this continued during lockdown when, no, when children had all gone home and schools were closed. Where did the money go for that? No one knows. You can talk about in the defense budget, you can talk about intelligence agencies. There were several scandals of cash being given to people, giving the political figures close to the president on apparently on orders of somebody in Asarok. There's also, for example, the NMPC has not published a report on its budget in how many years. Many agencies have not done any of that kind of thing. So the Barry government has actively encouraged corruption by reversing attempts at transparency and refusing to open up the government to scrutiny. You can even see that in the budget, which is which some people have kindly called a work of fiction. So it is not a surprise that the Bahia government has, has presided over this. The question you should be asking yourself is, why isn't it worse? Because, because they have done everything to encourage corruption in its purest form. I quite agree. Uh, Buhari's government has not been transparent. I remember he promised to publicly declare his assets, which he failed to do. Uh, we've seen reports that the central bank has been illegally lending money to the Nigerian government. We've seen a government that disobeys court orders. They've held El Zagzaki in illegal detention despite uh, the orders of the courts. You've seen their role in the Lekki massacres, which is also another abuse of power. So I'm generally surprised that Buhari's government is surprised that they've been given that ranking. But Phoenix, as you know, uh, in their signature fashion, Garbashil issued a statement accusing Transparency International of using fake data to reach their conclusion. Now, what I'm trying to understand is, do they genuinely believe that Transparency International use fake data? Or is this just an attempt to deflect from the real issues? Uh, but it's their MO. We've seen them do it uh, quite a few, few times. I, I, I'm trying to remember, was it World Bank or IMF or, or I think it was the World Bank that brought out a report that uh, that they, I mean, the, the Nigerian state <laughs> was it worried that said that uh, their statistics was fake or their data was fake. Meanwhile, the same data had come from the Nigerian Bureau of Statistics. I mean, this, these guys are, are, are jokers. I mean, one minute they're celebrating when Transparency International tells them they move up one notch. I think that happened in 2018, if I remember correctly. The same Transparency International, they now say, um, are using fake data. They never like it when things don't go their way. They never like it when um, the consequences of the actions that they take um, come back to bite them. 
Um, so it's the MO and it just shows the, the crassness, the, the sheer, the sheer lack of a sense of responsibility. I mean, the shamelessness of this group of people who are leading Nigeria. I mean, you know, when you have organizations like TI that keep you on your toes, I mean, the, the, these rankings have ramifications. They affect um, the ordinary Nigerian businessman who is trying to do business with his counterparts and gets um, and, and, and trying to convince uh, people to either invest or be trade partners or to extend the same trade terms as his own, as, as, as traders like him get in other African countries get from, from their partners. But we get, I mean, the Nigerians suffer because of things like this, things that they have nothing to do with, but are simply a failure of government. And then you have the government, instead of taking um, this on board and saying, look, we will be better, we will do better, Instead, they're, they're trying to uh, throw mud at uh, uh, Transparency International. When clearly the eye test, the smell test, every, every way that you can look at it tells you that corruption is worse in Nigeria. Every, everything that you look at tells you that corruption is worse. You have a central bank that, that ignores its mandate and instead is, is creating FX arbitrage that has been in place for five years. Think about how many billionaires have been minted. Think about what happened during the pandemic when they promised uh, to provide palliatives to people because of lockdowns, because of the economy going down. But instead, all of this stuff that was supposed to go to the common man ended up in the pockets of government functionaries. You hear about, I mean, large sums of money disappearing and all of those kind of things. You hear about insecurity, budgets are being, huge budgets are being um, assigned every year, but they, they can't seem to end the war. I mean, people, they, I mean, the, the soldiers are still um, under-equipped. So you now wonder why, <laughs> why, why, why wouldn't they say that corruption has worsened? You see nepotism everywhere. So it's a, they, they, it's a joke, really. And, and it just shows that, I mean, these people were in, are, are not fit to be in the offices that they hold. And they, and they will not, there's no positive outcome to expect for, for Nigeria as long as these people are in power. If they cannot be introspective and take this criticism on board and then go and try and do better, I mean, there's, I mean, just, it, it, it just, it just makes Nigeria a laughing stock. Omasa, I have this theory about Buhari and his government. And my, my suspicion is because Buhari is quite slim, tall, and he just looks stern, it's easy to create the impression that he runs a Snow White type of government and that he too is incorruptible just because of the way he looks and, and just his overall appearance. And my suspicion is that is why it's hard for many people to psychologically accept that this is, this is he's presiding over a very corrupt government. Do you agree? Uh, yeah, of course, this government is very corrupt because I don't think Buhari is necessarily the first person to get away with that, looking stern and to cover up for his kind of, for his misdeeds because of, I think the same thing could be said about the late General Abacha, who equally looks there stern and strict and technically was against corruption and we all know how that story ended. So yeah, it's it's perfect. I think that's a very plausible thing because 
yeah, Buhari's image, Buhari's image gives him a lot of cover for a lot of things, which is why he got elected in 2015, because if anyone had got even an inkling of the truth we see today, I don't, I don't think anyone would have voted for him in 2015. So his image gives his image and his image as an aesthetic general who doesn't like enjoyment or anything fun helps him, especially with his vice as being a pastor. So it, so they've been able to for a while, for about for the first few years of the admin to get away with with mass corruption stuff because of, and it's because of their image. So yeah, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that his image allows him to get away with things that other presidents would be would be criticized heavily for yes no thank you so uh, it means my my theory is is not outlandish then but on to our final topic uh, security uh, buhari after many years of outcry has finally changed his service chiefs and both on social media and in the barracks i think i saw some a video of the naval barracks and the army barracks where ordinary troops were also celebrating the changes. But Phoenix, is there cause for celebration? What, what, are, what are they expecting to happen that is making people so excited about these uh, new appointments? I, I, I think, I mean, if, if indeed the, the videos that we see are, are, are true and the reports that we hear are true, I can understand why why the troops are, are rejoicing and why people may perhaps, I mean, you know, when you've, when, when you've had to bear the brunt of bad leadership for so long, you've seen your comrades failed in battle, you've seen um, um, army leadership try to deny, uh, I mean, the military leadership try to deny when um, our soldiers have been attacked or killed, you've seen all the shenanigans that have gone on under this um, this last crop of service chiefs for five years. Five years is an eternity when you've been when you've been in war zone. In, in I mean, so I can understand why they will celebrate. But but stepping back, really, for me, there's there's nothing to jubilate about. Absolutely. This is long overdue. This is something that I've been calling for for the last two, three years. Because it was very clear that these guys were incompetent and were not going to give us um, an improved state of security. Instead, things just got worse and worse and worse. So for me, the issue, of course, has always lived with the so-called commander-in-chief who, given his background, you expected more. Of all the things that he said he was coming to, to do when he kept chasing power and wanted to be president of Nigeria, he came in in 2015 on a tripod of restoring the economy, an economy that he clearly did not understand, and that always makes me laugh, um, of, uh, of fighting corruption, because he said corruption will kill us, and... I mean, we just talked about TI and the fact that corruption has worsened. But the biggest issue that seemed people that made people turn towards him, because when I would speak to people back then, all they kept saying was that, look, this Boko Haram issue, apart from, of course, corruption, I mean, the Boko Haram issue was top of mind for a lot of people, especially after the Chibo girls issue. And they just felt that this, this, this uh, estuar military hard man 
this this fabled person of the Maitatsune, um, um how would I call it, fame, um, would be able to come in and you know get a handle on Boko Haram and end end this issue. He came in, and within six months, he was claiming they were technically defeated. But we know we know we know better, don't we? We've seen we've seen how things have have been really really bad. But what's even worse is that we've moved from one theater of activity or from one major foe into, into several conflagrations across the entire country. So for me, um, the failure not only has been of the, of the service chiefs, but also of the commander in chief who appointed them and who kept them in place for five years, despite the worsening situation. So there's nothing for me to, to be jubilant about. He's changed, he's finally done what he should have done. But what makes it even more egregious is that there's already, I mean, what he has chosen shows again his hand, shows how he thinks about things like this. Ruari's focus is always about loyalty and dedication. Even in his charge to these people, that's all he was talking about. And then you find you hear reports that I mean the 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 one one of the one of the service chiefs already has controversy. He was fired for being incompetent. All of a sudden, he's now the top man in the army. So I mean, what what's there to be jubilant about? How do we expect positive outcome or a better situation with the same type of people who who have come through, whose only agenda is to be loyal to their commander in chief and not? To the, to, the, to the Nigerian nation and the constitution and the people that they serve to make sure that we truly have positive outcomes. No, there's no, I mean, there's, for me, there's, there's nothing to be excited about. I can understand the, I mean, why, why the soldiers may be feeling that way. I totally, I understand that and I can, I can sympathize and empathize with that. But in terms of the bigger picture and Nigeria as a whole, it remains to be seen what we get out of these folks, but I'm not holding my breath, not with what we've seen. Mamasa, Phoenix is not holding his breath. He doesn't expect significant change because he thinks if we're still doing the same things over and over again, it would be strange to expect a different result. Is, is that your view as well? Do you think the issue is more to do with Buhari than whoever we appoint as security chiefs? Uh, I think it's both. For example, even if you're the best chief of army staff in the world, you cannot do, there's a limit to what you can do if your president is a political arsonist. In this case, our president is, because there's no place like he hasn't intervened that there's been a new crisis where it was done before. For example, we have, in addition to the Boko Haram problem, in 2023, he inherited 2015, he managed to cause the 90,000 Institute to restart for, for a period of time. There's the Herzman crisis, there's the IPOP crisis in the Southeast, there's the current one in the current Herzman issue in the Southwest, and there's those NSARS, which turned into a full blown national protest because of the president's actions. So the chief of staff has clear limits to what he can do if the president is always going about encouraging a new crisis or letting one explode around him. But at the same time, the, there's some issues, especially the defense budget. For, for the money that's spent, the, the chief of staff, army staff, navy staff and all of them, 
the Nigerian army is tremendously under-equipped for the amount of money that is spent on it. Most many countries in Africa, even like which are which have the same, which are poorer than us or smaller than us, or and spend less on their military budgets, do get, get like for example, get a lot more better returns on their money that that are than than we do. For example, we can talk about the Nigerian Air Force. It does not have a single modern modern fighter pro fighter jets anymore apart from the new gf-17s most of its planes are most of its planes are old and obsolete ethiopia which is a much smaller country has been able to buy and equip its forces with new fairly advanced planes same with angola ethiopia for example the ethiopian government has a budget of less than the size of lagos state i'll say and they've been able to do that whereas the nigerian army and air force have not been able to do that in for 20 years. This goes on in every single sector of the military. So that could, with some political will and influence, that can be that can be done and changed. But the fundamental long-term insecurity issue cannot be solved without political leadership. But the army can reform itself to improve its programs, weapons purchases, it the welfare of its of its men. I know that I know I know that because but as long as the president keeps encouraging crises to to emerge with his behavior, it is not possible for much change. Phoenix. Well, has made an important point, which is mismanagement seems to be a big problem in every part of Nigeria. And as he said, Ethiopia's budget is similar to Lagos. So if they can manage a relatively competent African air force, an army, but Nigeria struggles with those basic things, does that then mean this insecurity we're facing is going to be here with us for a very, very long time? I, I, I dare say it will be here with us for as long as Buhari is president. I don't see anything that tells me that he can he can turn the situation around. I mean, he's in his second term. We saw how the first term went. We've seen the first year in his second term. Uh, what am I even talking about? We're in the second year of, yeah, we're coming up on, on uh, the, the, the second year of his uh, second term. So, I mean, the guy is like, he's like, uh, he's like three quarters of the way gone. So, if he couldn't do that in in the first six years, what's to tell us that he can he can do anything in the next two? I think that that for me brings um, the, the the point home, and why and where I have concern, which is if we clearly can see that this guy cannot turn the situation around, how much longer can Nigeria bear this? Can we hold on? since we know that the National Assembly won't get rid of him, we know he won't resign. So we are forced to wait for another two years for this clown to go away um, and hope that we get somebody better. Just pray that God forgives us and, you know, <laughs> you know that at the eight years we can, we can have a fresh start. But how long, how long can the country bear that? I mean, will two years prove to be too far? I mean, given all the rumblings that we have, I mean, Masa was calling out all the crises that we have up and down the whole entire country. It's it's insane to think that, I mean, we we I mean that the country can just continue to coast 
with so many issues um, flying around and, and think that we will just, you know, make it to 2023 in one piece if, if something doesn't begin to turn around positively. I mean, we see the likes of, uh, of that Sunday Igbo character in, in New York State and, and how he is marshalling people to push back. You only need two or three of that to begin to happen before the state loses absolute control. And I mean, I'm one that believes that the state has already lost control. Um, and 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 then, I mean, you know, I I, I am an optimist. I, I hope that we we can we can. I hope that uh, that we can we can keep this uh, dark clouds at bay and that, uh, I mean, things find a way to calm down, but you also look around and you see that there are bad actors who are intent on doing evil. And I mean, and pe good people will not continue to stand by and just be taken advantage of. And that's where, I mean, the entire combustion will happen. So I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, that things don't get any worse, but my head tells me that uh, it's only a matter of time, and uh, and I don't see how the current uh, leadership can bring about a a, a positive turnaround. I, I just don't see it. Well, I'm also not very optimistic. Obviously, I was never a supporter of General Buhari, but when I saw the hype that the APC campaign with, I assumed that even though I didn't support Buhari, things will not be this bad, that there must be something he'll be capable of doing right. Uh, so I'm, I too am generally shocked at the level of deterioration, both in terms of security and the economy. But as you rightly said, uh, we need a political solution. So we need a leader who can address the political issues and, and the security issues and see it from a political point of view, if not and the country is at risk of implosion. But our time is up, so I must first of all thank Omasa for taking time out to be here. Uh, thank you, Phoenix, as well, for co-hosting with me. And finally, and most importantly, I thank all our listeners who have been loyal and giving us helpful feedback. So until same time next week, I say have a fantastic seven days. Thanks, Nigel's best, and thanks, Omasa, for joining us. Thank you, listeners. Thank you so much. I mean, great to have your feedback. Um, I mean, we've seen the service chiefs removed now, and we can only hope that this is the beginning of, of a long road to them being held to account for the Lekki massacre, among other things. Uh, we, we continue to keep that uh, top of mind and, and look forward to that day that justice will be served. Thanks, everyone, and have a great week ahead. Bye.